Uh, let's ask God to help us uh, with his word which he has given to us for our encouragement. Please pray with me as I pray for us. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, a God who can be known. And we thank you that in your word you have spoken to us a saving word, a word that tells us of your Son, our Lord Jesus, and what it is to trust him for life, and a word that can teach and guide and instruct us so that we can live the lives of his followers, our lives which are rich in doing good. Uh, we pray in your mercy that you would help us now to understand your word and that you would give us conviction that this is the word of the true and living, the holy and righteous God. And we pray that you would help me to speak it truthfully and clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we all have at times in our lives goals that just dominate and determine every part of our life for that time. You might be able to think of some, say, completing that apprenticeship or degree or perhaps pursuing PR or maybe even perhaps unimaginable for some, saving to buy a house. Well, imagine having a goal to which you've been moving towards, which has really been the only thing in your life for 40 years. Imagine what it would be like to be nearing the fulfilment of that goal. Because if you can do that, you can imagine what it would be like to be Israel, looking towards the promised land and the excitement, the anticipation that will be stirred up in them by Moses' instruction in Deuteronomy 27. You see, here he tells the people of Israel what they're to do when they come into the land that they've been promised, the land that people have been moving towards since they had left Egypt more than 40 years ago. He gives them, as you heard, a ceremony, a ceremony that will establish their legal basis for possession of the land, that will make it their own in perpetuity. And he helps them understand what is involved, not just in getting the land of promise, but in keeping it. In fact, whatever your life experience, if you're a believer in Jesus, you should be able to imagine what it is to have that goal and anticipate its fulfilment for every believer in Jesus from the day we believed has a goal that we've been moving towards, a promise whose fulfilment we are living for, the promise of resurrection and the new heaven and earth. Now that's actually a better hope and a better promise than the land of Canaan. And it's a better hope also because we already have the spirit guaranteeing the fulfilment of what God has promised to us. But like Israel on the plains of Moab, we too are pilgrims here, pressing on to our goal. And from Deuteronomy 27, we can learn how to get and how to keep what God has promised to us. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, <coughs> you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. Now, you cannot exaggerate the importance of this day that Moses speaks of, the day Israel will take legal possession of the promised land. Uh, The importance to the individual Israelite and his family, they'd now be in one place, able to plant, to grow, to harvest, to build. It would be the end of his wandering, an opportunity to become established and to pass on an inheritance to their children. Oh, it's important to the nation as a whole. A people need a land, and this land of promise will establish their place and identity among the nations. And in fact, there's even a recollection of the promise made to Abraham and repeated across the generations in the choice of Mount Ebal, verse 4, for this ceremony. You see, Mount Ebal borders the valley that's close to the site of Shechem. And it was at Shechem that Abraham first made an altar when he came from Mesopotamia into the land of Canaan. And it was at Shechem that the Lord first promised him the land. Genesis 12, verse 7, after he passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oaks of Morah, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Oh, and it's hard to exaggerate the importance of the occupation of this land, of this day, for the understanding of God and his purposes. You see, with the possession of the land, not only is the promise fulfilled and God's faithfulness established, that's true. I mean, the stones, like the land itself, will be a permanent witness to the people of the faithfulness of their God to his word. But there's more. You see, Israel, as God's people, in God's place, that is, in the land that he is giving them, in relationship with the Lord, the creator God as their king, Israel, as God's people, in God's place, in relationship with the living God, they become a witness to the Lord's great purpose in calling Abraham and making those promises to him. You see, that purpose is the reversal of the judgment on Adam's sin. That sin by which humanity was actually driven from God's presence in God's garden. And humanity and all creation was subjected to the futility of decay and death. In Israel, we see God starting to reverse that judgment. Israel, in the land have the possibility of showing the goodness of God's intention for humanity, that we should live at peace in his presence, in his good creation. With the land, Israel becomes a model for all the nations of the goodness of living with the Lord, just as Israel, the descendants of Abraham, are the bearers of God's promise. So this is a great day that Moses is speaking of in Deuteronomy 27. And the stones and the ceremony associated with their setting up will be a permanent reminder to the Israelites now of both the legitimacy and the basis of their possession of this land. Uh, Setting up stones and either engraving or writing on them the legal agreement between two parties 
was something that was already practiced by the surrounding nations and by the Egyptians. And so when Israel entered the land, Moses emphasises that they must write on these stones the Torah, all the instruction he has been giving them. And it is to be clearly written. As we see verse 8, you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Now why? Well, Canaan is the Lord's land and the Lord is giving it to Israel as those who are his people in covenant relationship with himself, this settled relationship, this formal relationship. The covenant the Torah expresses is Israel's title deed, securing the land for their possession. It's by being in covenant with the Lord that Israel possess and can continue to live in this land. And they are in this covenant relationship with the Lord by grace. The reality of the covenant, the content of the covenant and grace are both prominent in the ceremony. The covenant in the writing of the whole law on the stones and grace in the emphasis in verses 2 and 3 of the land as gift but also in the associated sacrifices spoken of in verses 5 to 7. You know, the, instruction there about the, the instructions there about the construction of the altar remind Israel and us that of themselves Israel are unfit to live in God's presence. They're commanded to use no tool on the altar because they're making it. They're making it their construction. Doing it their way would actually defile it, make it unfit for God's purpose. But God gives them an altar. And by the sacrifices the Lord provides, sacrifices that both atone for sin and speak of the relationship of peace established by those sacrifices, Israel can come and rejoice in his presence in his land. And so they will come into the land and enjoy legal entitlement to the land as they're in covenant relationship with the Lord, as they are his people in relationship with him by grace. And then shifting from Mount Ebal back to the plains of Moab, verses 9 and 10 uh, reminds, Moses in verses 9 and 10 reminds Israel that this is their reality. Keep silence and hear, he says, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. In the renewal of the covenant on the plains of Moab, Israel, his hearers, have become, says Moses, being renewed as the people of the Lord their God. And what that meant was that they had to live as his people, keeping all his commands. And that note of obedience actually frames this whole chapter. I don't know if you've noticed, but verse 1 and verse 26 both speak of that obedience to all that God has commanded. It's this requirement of covenant relationship that to be the Lord's people, to live in the Lord's land, they are to keep his commands. It's this requirement of covenant relationship that the people are to own for themselves when they take possession of the land. 
That's the point of the ceremony that Moses goes on to describe in verses 11 to 26. Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan and Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice. So all the people are to be gathered at that time, half the tribes on the slopes of Mount Gerizim, half on the slopes of Mount Ebal, facing each other across this valley which is close to Shechem, with some of the Levites in between them. Now the division of the people reminds the people that the covenant, as we'll see next week, always presents them with the possibility of blessing or curse, that there's always a a choice. But as you heard in verses 15 to 26, it is only curses that are spoken by the Levites. Now why? Why gather the people to hear these curses proclaimed? Gather them to give their assent, to say amen, to say yes to these curses. Well, to answer that, let's think first about what it is to be cursed and then about the particular behaviours that are cursed here. To be cursed is to be consigned to the judgement of the Lord. And what that might mean will be brought out in chapter 28. And there we'll see how dreadful it is to fall under the judgement of God. And these curses are delivering those who do these things into the hands of the Lord, delivering them into the hands of the Lord as the one who establishes and maintains the moral order of the universe through the punishment of those who do wrong. So to be cursed by the people of God, to be cursed by the law, is to be delivered into the hands of the Lord, the just God, for punishment of the wrong that we've done. Now, why this selection and why do all the people have to affirm these curses? Well, at one level, what you have in verses 15 following is a a representative selection of the laws that they just heard, a selection that reflects the priorities of relationship with the Lord. So the curses are, as you heard, framed between a commitment to worship the Lord alone and to be wholehearted in doing the law, to confirm the words of this law by doing them, all the law. Uh, Then there are curses that look at protecting the family and its place in Israel, because the family and its stability are key to sustaining the covenant relationship and key to each Israelite enjoying the blessing of relationship, enjoying the blessing of being in the Lord's land. It's the family who primarily teaches the Torah and creates a culture of Torah conformity. And it is to families that the Lord will allocate land holdings. In a sense, that is part of their their, their part in the people of God. And so, say, to move a neighbour's landmark, to deprive them of their land, was to deprive them of inheritance and it was to threaten their viability, their continuing place in God's people. And then there are curses that reflect the priority that we have seen in the law, verses 
18 and 19, the Lord's priority of protecting the weep, weak and vulnerable. Uh, they are cursed to abuse the vulnerable and take advantage of another's misfortune. Uh, the Lord had called for compassion on the vulnerable and he had said that his people in their legal proceedings should look for justice and only justice. Now this is then followed by four curses relating to sexually immoral behaviour. And all four of these behaviours take place within the household. Now these are behaviours that can powerfully disrupt homes, lead to terrible jealousy and bitterness. And they're behaviours that can make the home an unsafe place for the vulnerable women who are attached to the households, like the sister or the mother-in-law, an unsafe place because of unbridled male lust and entitlement. And these are behaviours that diminish humanity. Now that's particularly true of verse 21. Bestiality, a behaviour that blurs the boundary between the rest of creation and God's image bearers. Now that was a boundary established clearly in the creation of woman in Genesis 2 when nothing in the non-human creation was fit to be the companion of the man. And so to transgress this boundary is to repudiate God as creator and reject the place that God has given humanity in the world. Now the final two behaviours say that God's judgment will fall on those who seek to destroy or do destroy their neighbour's life, breaking the absolute prohibition there since Genesis 9 on the taking of innocent life. Now more could be said about the priorities and values these curses express. But there is something that all of these have in common. Importantly, these are all sins that can be hidden. It's setting up an idol in secret, striking a neighbour in secret. And how could a blind man identify his accuser, abuser? And who would stand up for the orphan and the widow who had no one to represent them in the gate, the place of legal proceeding? Dishonouring a parent can take many forms. And like the sexual behaviours, they can all take place within the confines of the home where people can be intimidated to keep quiet. You see, where sins are public, like idolatry or murder, well, they're punished publicly according to the provisions of the law. But this is the people of God pronouncing the judgment of God on sins that may not, may never come to public notice. <coughs> By all the people saying amen, they're actually owning for themselves the implication of being in a covenant relationship with the Lord, the holy God, the God who sees and knows all. And that implication is that to be in covenant with the Lord is to be wholeheartedly committed to the standards of that relationship, not just when other people are watching you, not just when you might get caught for breaking them, but to be committed to them in private when no one else sees. And the Israelites are owning that individually by condemning these hidden secret failures to do God's law by saying amen. Each one 
is committing themselves to living as the Lord's holy people in his place, to upholding the expectations of being in relationship with him at all times and in all places. So they're acknowledging that to be his people, they need heart conformity to the relationship, the conformity of the will that will show itself in a consistent commitment to God's standards, even in private. And standing on Gerizim and Ebal, they are actually acknowledging that it is on the basis of this commitment that they occupy the land and that any falling short of this commitment deserves to be cursed. That is, deserves to be judged by the righteous God with the judgment that he has pronounced on such unfaithfulness and disobedience. So Israel are here acknowledging that it is only as his people, a people who can form their lives to the covenant even when unseen, who can form their hearts to the values of the covenant, that they can possess and live in the land. Commanding this ceremony where the people hear the curses pronounced and say themselves, Amen, tells us God expects his people to own for themselves, to be committed to individually what is involved in being relationship with him, what's involved in being saved by him, to be in covenant relationship with himself. Well, that day, a day recorded as taking place in Joshua 8, would be a wonderful day for Israel, wouldn't it? A day when they rejoice in the fulfilment of God's promises to Abraham, when they celebrate the Lord's faithfulness. Yes, a serious day, even though a joyous day, when they acknowledge their relationship to the Lord, the living creator, the God of all the earth, that he is their God and they are his people committed to living his way. A joyous day, a serious day. But you know what? Sadly, it was also a day on which Israel pronounced judgment on itself. When Israel declared its own end, prophesied its eventual failure to keep that good land because Israel did not keep the covenant. They transgressed. The prophets, starting with the book of Judges, <laughs> the generation after the death of Joshua, tell us how Israel worshipped idols dispossessed the poor from their inheritance, embraced sexual immorality, practiced violence against each other. Uh, they did that over centuries. Here Isaiah, how the faithful city, and here he's speaking of Jerusalem, has become a whore, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderous. Your sin <coughs> has become dross, your best mind wine mixed with water, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Or hear Amos. For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. The land Israel were given, they could not keep 
because they rejected relationship with the Lord, rejected the Lord as their king. They brought themselves under his judgment, a judgment that they themselves had owned and declared. And after showing great patience, God acted righteously and cast them forth from the land into exile as he said he would. They lost what was promised, what they had. They turned blessing into a curse because they chose the curse, not the blessing. And this terrifying and real judgment, and it was terrifying and real when Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem and destroyed it. This terrifying and real judgment did not happen to Israel because they were especially bad examples of humanity. No, it happened to them because they're actually like us, children of Adam, people whose hearts from birth are turning away from God to love ourselves, not God, our Creator. People who from birth set our minds to doing what pleases us, not what our God commands us. And don't think that the curses Israel declared, the judgment of the holy God on these sins is exclusive to Israel. You see, God's law tells us what he hates. These curses are an expression of who he is, of his righteousness, and he has not changed. His judgment still falls on those who worship idols, whether they're concrete images or whether they're the idols of the imagination of our hearts, where we, well, we choose to believe in the God we want to believe in, not the God who is, who has made himself known finally in his son Jesus. Oh, his judgment still falls on sexual immorality, and that's any sex outside marriage. His judgment still falls on those who exploit the vulnerable, who take advantage of others' misfortunes, who want to destroy another. His judgment still falls on those who dishonour parents. In fact, on anyone who does not do what is at the heart of this Torah, this instruction, and that is love the true and living God with all their hearts and love their neighbour as themselves. You see, these curses say and say very clearly that if you do these things, you are under the judgment of the living God in his hands to be punished as he maintains the righteous order of the universe. So think about that. Think of your life. Have you ever used another, dishonoured your parents, engaged in sexual immorality? Or, looking at it the other way, have you always honoured God by giving him thanks for his good gifts to you and using what he has given you to do his will, not what just pleases you? Have you never acted selfishly, never lied, the curse Israel pronounces is also pronounced on us. Of ourselves, we could not live in the presence of God, are not able to face the one we most certainly will face at the judgment. Of ourselves, we deserve to be excluded from blessing. God's righteous law delivers us to his just judgment. 
But thankfully, the curse is not the last word for Israel or for us. You see, Israel coming into the land, those stones that they were to raise and whitewash on Mount Ebal, they showed that the Lord is the faithful God. He's remained committed to fulfilling his promise to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He's committed to blessing. And he's committed to having a people who could live in his presence, a people of his own. And in that faithfulness, the Lord has sent his son Jesus into the world. Now Paul develops this, as you heard, in his letter to the Galatians. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, written, as you've heard in Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Paul's point is both is that both scripture and experience tell us that we could never be justified, never be declared innocent in God's judgment, never be fit to live in his presence and enjoy his blessing by law-keeping, by our doing all that the law command, the Lord commands. The law, which looks, as we've seen in Deuteronomy, for perfect obedience, which promises, verse 12 of Galatians 3, which promises life to perfect obedience, instead shows us our failings and pronounces God's just judgment on us. But God had already decided that righteousness, being reckoned right before God's judgment, fit to live at peace with him, will come not by law-keeping but by faith in his promise as it came to Abraham, who believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The nations would share in the blessing of Abraham of being right with God by faith through the same faith, but faith now in the crucified and risen Jesus who has delivered us, verse 13, from the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. Our debt to God's law, our obligation to suffer the punishment it pronounces on our disobedience, on our heart rebellion against God, is discharged by Jesus, becoming a curse for us on the cross. There Jesus suffers the law's punishment, death in our place. And Jesus having paid the debt, we are redeemed, that is, we are freed from the law's judgment at this awesome cost to God. It's through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, that we escape the deserved curse of the law, of being delivered by the law to the just punishment that God has decreed for lawbreakers, exclusion from his presence, death forever. Trusting Jesus, it's the opposite. We are freed forever from that judgment, for the value of that obedient death of our Lord is infinite. Now these are familiar words to many of us, I know. Oh, and they're words and ideas that we will celebrate soon in the Lord's Supper. But they should also be lived realities 
for every one of us who has been brought under conviction of sin, to whom the righteous, holy God has in his mercy shown us in our hearts what we deserve for our sin. Shown us that it is a terrible thing to fall under the righteous wrath of God. And I hope every one of you listening here knows that and is not thinking that I will be okay by myself because it's also a wonderful thing to know that you are no longer and will never again be cursed, never again be delivered up to the Lord's just judgment, his just punishment on sin. And Christ hangs on the cross, becomes a curse for us, not because we are good or deserving, but as Paul wrote earlier in Galatians, it was because of love. That's what he wrote, the Son of God, and he makes an individual who loved me and gave himself for me. And every believer can say that. Christ hangs there because the Son of God loves me, loves me, seeing my sin, knowing we are so unlovely. And because of Christ's death, Paul goes on to speak of the wonderful privileges of believers in Jesus, that the blessing of Abraham comes to us. And that speaks both of righteousness, that we, like Abraham, are declared righteous by faith, that by faith we no longer need to fear God's just judgment on our sin. And it also tells us that by faith, chapter 3, verse 7, we become sons, sons and daughters, children of Abraham, part of his family. And so those who will inherit what was promised Abraham, blessing, not curse, being able to have God as our God and be his people. And we are guaranteed our inheritance because it's through faith in Jesus we come to belong to the family of Abraham and through faith in Jesus we come first to share in the son's relationship with the father. We become children of God, his adopted children. And as children we receive the promised spirit of God crying, Abba, Father, in our hearts. All this is ours now. And being ours through faith in Christ, we become heirs. We become people who have an eternal inheritance, a share in the new heavens and earth, the new creation. We, like Israel on the plains of Moab, believers in Jesus, look forward to one day possessing all that we have been promised. And we look forward to that with confidence because, you see, we get and we keep what is promised because of Jesus, because of what he has done once for all on the cross. We get and keep through faith in him. And the spirit we receive, the spirit of his son, is already the down payment on that eternal inheritance, God guaranteeing to us our possession, our share on that day. It is a wonderful thing to be freed from the curse of the law by the death of Jesus. And if you're a believer in Jesus, I hope you know it and you rejoice in it. 
But the curses and amens of Deuteronomy 27 tell us God expects his people to own for themselves, to be committed to individually what is involved in being in relationship with him, what is involved in being saved to be in covenant relationship with him. Now what does that commitment look like for us, believers in Jesus? What, in a sense, do we say amen to, yes to, as God's new covenant people, people who receive forgiveness, salvation through faith in Jesus crucified? Well, in Galatians, Paul tells us that we are saying amen to being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and to persevering in this humble, dependent faith in Jesus. He's saying that, that, that in embracing faith in Jesus, we are saying that we can never again return to relying on our own works, to relying on our own law-keeping to be right with God. Never again return to having our confidence and pride in our own righteousness. But there is more we say amen to. As we're about to see in the Lord's Supper, you know, to rely on the death of Jesus for forgiveness and being included amongst the Lord's people is also to say yes, amen, to living with hope and love, a love that embraces mercy and grace in our dealings with others. So having heard that Jesus' death frees us from God's curse, brings us forgiveness. Let's now come and share in that meal and learn as we share in that meal what it means to be saved by the death of Jesus.